Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline. And today's episode is called Harry Podcast and the Quidditch World Cup. Today we will be discussing what the deal is with Winky, the Vila as the introduction of sexuality in the series, and the political dynamics of the top box. So the group goes through the woods next to the campground, and they find a giant stadium that can seat 100,000 people. As they walk up to the top box where Mr. Weasley has seats, thanks to Little Bagman, Harry sees someone who looks like Dobby, but it's actually another house elf named Winky who works for Mr. Crouch, and says that she is saving her boss a seat. Winky and Harry have a chat about Dobby. Winky is horrified that Dobby wants to be paid for his work. It seems like overall, house elves do not support Dobby's line of thinking about freedom and payment in exchange for labor. Cornelius Fudge, the Minister of Magic, comes into the top box with the Bulgarian Minister of Magic. Fudge greets Harry like a friend and then says hello to a family that has just come into the top box, Lucius, Narcissa, and Draco Malfoy. The match begins with the display of the team mascots. Bulgaria has Vila, creatures who look like beautiful women and enchant every man in the stadium to forget everything else but their beauty, and convince them to support Bulgaria. Then the Irish mascots come onto the field. They're leprechauns, and they can make gold rain down onto the people in the stands. Ron gives Harry a handful of leprechaun gold in exchange for the omnioculars that Harry bought him. Then the Irish and Bulgarian teams come flying onto the Quidditch field. The Irish team has a really organized offensive formation, and they're scoring one goal after another. Crum is clearly the most exciting player on the pitch. Aidan Lynch, the seeker for the Irish team, flies straight into the ground trying to keep up with Crum's Ronsky feint diversion. Finally, all of a sudden, as Ireland is now leading Bulgaria 170-10, Aidan Lynch spots the snitch. He and Crum dive for it, but Crum is better on a broomstick. Crum gets the snitch. So the final result of the World Cup match is Bulgaria 160 to Ireland 170. Ireland wins, but Crum gets the snitch. Harry, Hermione, and Ron agree that Crum had no other choice but to catch the snitch when he did. Bulgaria was never going to catch up. As Ludo stops his announcing, Fred and George are waiting for him with their hands outstretched. Okay, so thoughts on Winky. This is our first time meeting Winky. It's our first time meeting um, another house elf besides Dobby. We haven't even seen house elves in a group yet. We haven't seen anything, just Dobby. Right. Um, And so she seems very non-empowered, I guess would be a way to point it out, um, that Mm -hmm. she's believed strongly in the hierarchy of power and abuse of house elves and is really Mm -hmm. just in the context of Dobby's kind of freedom. Now he's trying to get everybody else, um, all the other house elves to be, um, you know, liberated themselves and they're not doing it. And she especially feels like I'm, we'll see this later on, but she especially feels that she needs to be loyal to her masters. And that's the only way. Yeah. What's interesting about this to me is that um, Dobby is the first house elf that that we meet through Harry. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and for the first three books, he's the only house elf that we know. Right. So we kind of feel like his opinions on, like, wanting to be free, wanting payment for his work, things like that, um, are normal house elf desires. And we sympathize with that position because it's the plight of the working man. You know, it's the, the story of every working person throughout all time is they want to be free, they want better working conditions and better wages. 
Um, and so we can empathize with that position. And then the second house elf that we meet is so strongly against all those positions. And she's saying, I don't think what Dobby is doing is right. I'm trying really hard to convince him not to accept payment for his work. I think that's crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, he's trying to push all these ideas on other house elves. And I think he should really stop because he's going to ostracize himself. Um, it's, yeah. And, w- and, yeah. and what it implies and what we're going to learn later is that this this really is the majority opinion among elves is that they don't like Dobby's new philosophy. Mm-hmm. They want things to stay the same as they are, pretty much. And and in some ways, and we can talk about this later on in the, yeah. the elf-focused chapters, I think it, it can be a commentary on how working-class people often support conservative political policies mm-hmm. to their own detriment. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting allegories yeah. to think about. Like, I, I think it's going to be a really good discussion once Spew starts to think about, like... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this what is the this, chapter to get into that. What part. is this an allegory for? What what do we think that this portrayal of whatever the allegory is means about <laughs> these kind yeah. of judgments? It's just it's really interesting, and this is our first um, this is our first hint of that. There's been a lot of discourse over the years about what is Rowling trying to say, what is the allegory that she's going for, um, and we can unpack all of those uh, at another chapter. I think in particular. The House Elf Liberation Front is probably the chapter where we'll Mm -hmm. we'll do most of that discussion. But back to Winky in this chapter, she says she's there to save a seat for Mr. Crouch, but we know from reading this chapter that he never arrives. And then later on in this book, we learn that he was never planning on attending. Mm -hmm. In fact, his empty seat is being taken by his son in an invisibility cloak. Right. And I know that when we were uh, rereading this chapter, you mentioned that we should go over who all is in the box. Mm. Um, so, because, I mean, part of that is to count the seats and kind of see that um, nobody comes to, like, nobody comes to fill that seat that she's saving. But also to think about, like, who is there and kind of what are the political dynamics in the box? Because I think it's really interesting. Like, we see... Well, first of all, let's count people. So we see Cornelius Fudge. Mm-hmm. And the Bulgarian minister. Mm-hmm. Um, the three Malfoys. Mm-hmm. The Weasley party is Arthur, Bill, Charlie, Percy, Fred, George, Ginny, Ron, Harry, Hermione. So that's ten people. Winky and the empty seat next to her. So that's um, 17. So that's 17. Uh, and I think the, the top box seat's... Maybe a little bit more than that. Probably not a ton more than Maybe that. Maybe 20. I don't know. It's just a weird thought to think of, like, why is this combination of people here? So we know, obviously, Ludo's there. He's announcing. Mm-hmm. Um, Malfoys are there. They donated a bunch of money to St. Mungo's. Oh, is that what they say later? Yeah. But what's funny to me is that Ludo has his own seat because he's announcing. He was able to get 10 seats. Right. Through his connections as, like, chair of the Department I wonder of if Magical it's, Games and Sports. I don't know why I'm thinking of this, but I wonder if, like, in general, he gets to, like, discreetly, like, he gets to pick different, like, ministry members to bring their families each year. Mm-hmm. And, like, this year he just, like, owed Arthur. And so he's, like, you can take all the seats. Which, by the way, it's really interesting because the favor that he owes Arthur for is so small compared to sitting in the top box for yeah. the World Cup. I feel like that's, like, really bizarre. And, like... I don't know if much attention has been paid to that in other discussions of this chapter, but I feel like the There's thing that else. Arthur, like Arthur got his brother out of trouble with like a lawnmower or something, mm-hmm. and it was like a minor offense. And then Ludo is like, thanks so much. I'm giving you 10 seats in the top box where there's 
mm-hmm. I don't know, 30 seats total and everybody wants to be there. But he's just like, here, you can mm-hmm. have 10 seats in the top. That's got to be worth so much money. And the fact is that Ludo Bagman, as we're going to learn, mm. doesn't have that much money right. because he keeps gambling all of his money away. Um, so he could have easily like grifted those seats or sold them to mm. someone at the highest bidder like like Fudge clearly did with the Malfoys. That donation. So maybe he is... helps him out with something more than just that. Maybe, but Arthur's a pretty stand-up guy. I don't know. I, it's just bizarre to me that like he would waste this opportunity to get a whole bunch of money for those seats on like Arthur mm-hmm. <laughs> for like yeah. some like like really small favor that doesn't seem that important. I don't know. Or maybe he's like hoping to use that connection in the future or something. Like we don't really know, but he yeah. seems like somebody who would. Who would, like, go all out, you know, kind of on a whim right. with the situation. Um, I also just thought it was kind of interesting. Sorry to interrupt. But I, 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 the reason why I, like, originally when we were reading it pointed out that, like, look at all these named characters that are in this. Mm-hmm. Is that, like, if we – unless we imagine that the top box is actually pretty large, because um, I've always imagined it as being pretty small. Like, most of the people that are sitting in the box are in the Weasley group. Mm-hmm. And most of the people that are in the box are, like, named characters that we know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's not a lot of, like, heads of state there besides, like, Fudge and the Bulgarian mm-hmm. Minister of Magic. Um, there's not a lot of, like, celebrities. There's not a lot of, like, other mm-hmm. important people. It's, like, the Malfoys <laughs> and, like, the Weasleys and then, like, four other people. Yeah, it's strange. And, like, Crouch is there, I guess, makes sense. Um, or, like, is supposed to be there. So then we have Wingy, which is also funny because you would think, like, that's also funny because it's, like, I'm saving a seat for him. But, like, really, that's two seats that she's taking out right. the whole time. Right. I've always thought of that, too. And to me, it, it seems like um, it wouldn't actually make any sense. It would actually make much more sense if he went with his son and it was just, like, he was, like, um, oh, I'm saving a seat for, like, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's weird that she is taking up a seat. And she is the one that's there. But um, anyway, it's just, yeah, it's a kind of interesting crew. And, you know, we will know more and, like, have more interactions with Fudge specifically um, in later on in the series. And just the whole, whole idea of, like, oh, well, he knows Harry. Like, they're old friends kind of from last mm-hmm. book. <laughs> it is, like, an interesting kind of look into, like, where Harry as, like, a figure is politically yeah. as well. Because he is... A political figure, and, like, he's used as that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's definitely something we'll talk about in this book. Harry but... is, like, super not polarizing at this point. Yeah. Like, the whole reason that Fudge wants to be buddy-buddy with Harry is that he is the boy who lived. He's incredibly popular in the mm-hmm. wizarding community as a whole. Um, and he is very, like, vanilla, bland celebrity. Like, he has no scandals. He has no, like, weird political positions. He's not famous for anything except, like, saving the world, basically. Right. So it's very, like, safe. He's like Alex Trebek to be his friend. Yeah, yeah. But he, he's like Alex Trebek if Alex Trebek saved the entire world. Yeah, like every, <laughs> Which he did, Everybody would want to have him, like, on their team, you know? Yeah, and, like, he's not controversial at all at this point. Exactly. Yeah. He's super not controversial. And then the flip between this and the end of this book, when Fudge and Dumbledore find themselves on opposite sides and mm-hmm. Harry sides with Dumbledore... Um, Fudge no longer wants to have anything to do with Harry and, in fact, spends the better part of a year villainizing him. Right. Um, because he's no longer useful to Fudge. In fact, he's, like, an enemy and a powerful one at that. Because, mm-hmm. as you said, he is a political figure. Mm-hmm. Um, but when they find themselves on opposite sides, that's dangerous for Fudge. 
Yeah, and I think it'll be really interesting later in this book as well when Harry starts being um, written about a lot in the press that yeah. um, to think about like him as this kind of political figure and like what what he sort of like represents and then what like he becomes in this sort of tabloid way that's yeah. um, really interesting. There's but, this great line where Fudge starts spouting off these like accusations about Harry and his credibility and Harry just like you can almost feel in the narration like his disappointment in his mm-hmm. voice as he says you've been reading Rita Skeeter Mr. Fudge yeah is like he's kind of like you don't know me you're just reading yeah. the stuff in tabloids and you believe it right you know what I mean but we'll get to that when we get to that um this chapter is he's kind of funny because he basically his his main interaction is trying to communicate with the Bulgarian minister of magic who claims not to really speak English so he has to c- communicate through this like weird like sign language yeah, so maybe stuff, but then at the end of the match, he reveals that he actually could speak English the whole time. Maybe the like reveal about Fudge character in this scene is like the Bulgarian minister probably thought he was like uh, annoying and was like, "I'm gonna, you know, screw with this he's guy." Like, yeah, he's like, it would be really funny to like make this pompous, yeah, politician like have to mime stuff all day, basically. Oh, and I had a quick question, which was, is Fudge also the minister of Ireland? And maybe that's mm. a silly question, but I guess we don't really have a good sense of the Ministry of Magic, if that is just, um, you know, England, Britain, the UK, like, what, what our situation is kind of here. Yeah. Um, I guess we can assume that he is or that he's, like, that representing no, that. The fact that there's no Irish minister in the top box with them, at least named, yeah. I think leads us to believe that the Irish is are part of the British wizarding government mm-hmm. still. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the muggle... Irish nationalism movement notwithstanding, it seems like the wizarding Irish community is still considered part of Britain. So I want to talk about the Vila um, because I think it's really fascinating. It's fascinating that they are, that they exist, that they're written about, that they are the mascots (laughs) in this case, but these are the, these are basically like harpies is what we would think of them in Greek mythology. They're like, um, these sort of like beautiful women that can turn into scary birds, um, yeah, type monsters, and I think that um, it's just really interesting. First of all, that they are the mascot because what they do, we find out, which there's not really detailed description of. It's just that like they captivate every male, I guess, within a certain radius, and that makes them the men obsessed with them and want to do yeah through like, dancing, right. Through dancing. Yeah, sort of like hula dancing is what I imagine. Oh, I always imagined it as like a... Um, I, well, I don't know. It doesn't really matter. I just <laughs> I think of them more as like siren type figures, mm-hmm. right? Um, so it's sort of like a Bulgarian version of a Greek siren, maybe. Um, and in, in Newt's Commander's Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, uh, he, he writes about merpeople. Mm-hmm. Um, they decided to classify themselves as beasts because they didn't want to have a being classification. Because mm. um, they didn't want to participate in wizard government, um, but uh, Vila are not included in that category, um, and in, in fact, they're not in the book at all. They seem to be sort of a different class of, uh, you know, part human or something. Mm-hmm. Like they can mate with humans, which we mm-hmm. learn later on, um, and and their offspring are viable and all that stuff, and they're just really pretty, basically. Right. Uh, so it's kind of a weird designation. Like they're mascots, but are they? beasts like they seem more like beings to me are leprechauns beasts um 
I believe leprechauns are beings and they govern themselves. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting because they're both, both things are mascots that are like, kind of like a real group of people in in my mind, as opposed to like, you know, uh, animals or something yeah. like that. Yeah. It's more clear. I mean, they but have, They have intelligence. They're like sentient, you know, they uh, clearly are, are a lot more complex than, you know, the Detroit Lions or whatever. So maybe Mascot it's like, lion. maybe it's like the... They're almost like the like cheerleaders instead of the like okay I like they're that. real people doing things that are like for the team you know yeah but let's talk about the introduction of sexuality in this chapter yeah so I mean what we're getting from this is that introduction of sexuality especially from kind of like young male teenager which is our perspective because that's Harry's perspective is like right. look at these mysterious beautiful women that are. Secretly scary and dangerous, and also um, are tricking you to try to do dangerous things or, like, you know, make yourself look stupid and embarrassed, mm-hmm. which is a major one. And I, ju- I just think it's an interesting choice to introduce... To say the least. ...sexuality in this way, really, to the series, because there's a- there's been, like, a little hints of, like, Harry thinks Cho Chang is pretty... But yeah, last book, but it's not really a thing Nothing yet. that's like, whoa, I'm so captivated magically in this way. And mm-hmm. obviously, like, this is a magic spell, but we're supposed to take it as, like, this is what sexuality is. This is what it the, it is for Harry. This is what he's learning. This mm-hmm. is what... Well, you know, just like in the Siren mythology, it's supposed to just be uh, allegorical about women generally. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. The seductress. It's almost, like, archetypal. Right. So this is saying, basically, like, this is what women are like. Like, they're going to try to embarrass you. They're going to try to hurt you if you get... They'll turn into horrible, like, fireball (laughs) curling witches if they get pissed off. Yeah. Like, they are... They're beautiful, and but don't fall for it, basically. Yeah. And Mr. Weasley even says, that, boys, is why you should never go for looks alone. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just kind of like, okay. um. But it it is weird. I mean, this is a, a female author who is writing this... From the perspective of a teenage boy, and I guess, for, for me, I guess her point would be that this is the way that teenage boys experience the blossoming of their sexuality, is that mm-hmm. it's, like, overwhelming, and it's so, like, hormonal, um, and that you, you're just, like, compelled to do stupid things mm-hmm. uh, for, for a pretty girl, basically. And maybe this is, like, the, the sort of most base of sexuality, and, like, it's sort of, because it's being introduced now, it's, like this is what it's like at the beginning. Like, it's no no mm-hmm. context and no association with anything, and it's scary and all this stuff. So yeah. I guess that it's kind of a maybe a more interesting or generous reading of it, I think. Yeah, because a lot of <laughs> the readings that I would take from this would be just not super great about women, mm-hmm. um, which is strange coming from a female author. I mean, it, it is kind of misogynistic, right? I mean, it, it's saying, like, really, really beautiful women are a and, danger. And, you know what, I bet people even um, wrote about this because the idea of Vila is, like, the idea of trans women. Where it's, like, oh, really? the people... Like well, I, I feel like people would interpret this as, like, in a transphobic way of, like, oh, somebody's pretending to be a girl and they're so beautiful and pretty. Oh, but wow. then they trick you. Wow. <laughs> I never thought about that. Did I just come up with a great idea? You did. Uh, wow, this is that's really interesting. Um, I guess 
yeah, we, we, maybe we should have seen all of this uh, misogyny from J.K. Rowling kind of coming then, or at least the transphobia aspect. I mean, I really just thought of that just now, but I think that that is something that is, like, kind of the inherent, like, transphobic, especially anti-trans females is, like... Yeah. They look beautiful it, and then they trick you. It's like 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 a reverse villa almost in a sense. Like they start out this horrible monster and <laughs> they transform into a beautiful woman. Yeah. It's um, <laughs> pretty awful. <laughs> I mean, it, this is really bad, but I think it's, you know, I think it's something whenever we're discussing, like, it may not always be relevant, but I think it, yeah. it's kind of lays itself out here is like, this is... Uh, whenever there's kind of misogyny that comes up in the book, and we will talk about that there is going to be a lot of, like, a lot more sexism and weird allegories that come up later Mm -hmm. that I think, you know, are possibly important. Definitely. I think think this is really the start of a lot of casual sexism in the series, Um, not just from male characters, but almost sort of from the author as well and i think right. a lot of it does come from the male characters a lot of male characters are written to be sexists mm-hmm. um in in casual ways usually sometimes in overt ways um but i think a lot of it is is ingrained in the text and is just part of the um way that the author built this narrative yeah and i mean so going back to vila specifically we find out later florida Kerr, who we're gonna meet um a tri-wizard mm-hmm. champion is that one of the best characters in this book, I think. Yeah, and so I think her grandmother was Avila. Yeah, is that's that what correct? she says, yeah. Um, and she, we can see how kind of strong that is because she basically, she's very beautiful, but also her hair is like kind of shining. Like she's kind of mm-hmm. magical, like more than other people. And Yeah, I think Harry says like when he first sees her, it's described as like an otherworldly beauty, mm-hmm. you know. And, and that's the same kind of thing as the Avila I've described. It's like... It's almost weird how beautiful they are. Yeah. It doesn't really make sense. Like, like a little alien. Yeah, it's like magical. Yeah. Um, so, and- I mean, what does this kind of say about Fleur that we just kind of this interpretation of Vila? I mean, I guess it's supposed to be like a little mysterious, a little dangerous maybe. Like maybe we're supposed to, because we have this association with Vila, when we meet her as um, a champion, we can kind of think of her as like, oh, she could be like really like come up from behind because she's like really you know has a i think that was the general idea is that like oh she could be hiding some some like dangerous power Mm -hmm. you know underneath this like exterior of like a very beautiful woman who is gifted magically Mm -hmm. um you know could be this like insidious or like subterfuge oriented nature Mm -hmm. somehow but that doesn't really come to fruition at all It, it and if anything it's a red herring um, cause she doesn't really ever do anything yeah, underhanded but I think it was or sneaky. Maybe intentional to have us be suspicious of Vila and then get mm-hmm. a little suspicious of her. I don't think that was, that was really expanded upon enough. Mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, we can comment back on this later on in the book, but For if, if that was intended yeah. to be a red herring, I don't think it was really, uh, illustrated. And well. I don't think she gets enough. Um, she doesn't get enough screen time for sure. At all. She gets the least of the four champions. I think out of the fact that it's it's based on who interacts with Harry the mm-hmm. most, obviously Cedric and Harry have some interactions, and Crumb has some interactions with Harry by nature of him dating Hermione, mm-hmm. basically. But um, aside from Harry rescuing Gabrielle in the second task, he and Fleur don't really talk much. Right. So, I don't know. It's, it's interesting, but 
I feel like she, you know, deserved better. And we could have gotten more of her in later books as well. We do get a little bit more of her later on in the seventh book when she marries Bill. And mm-hmm. then they have the scene in the cottage. But it's still not enough. Yeah. She was a really interesting character. I think she could have been explored a lot more. Okay, so Leprechaun Gold. So what we know from reading the book is that Leprechaun Gold is fake. It vanishes after, what, a few hours? A few hours, yeah. Um, But... What I was wondering, and we, we know that Ron doesn't know that because he genuinely tries to pay Harry, which is yeah. also sad in terms of what we were discussing uh, last chapter. Well, in the moment, it's kind of funny, though. Yeah. It's just like, oh, look, a bunch of free gold. I got Here, it back. Um, <laughs> okay. But yeah, I mean, it's 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 kind of funny, right? Because he's like, oh, like, look at all this free gold. Here, mm-hmm. Harry, you have some of the free gold that's raining down on us. Right. Now you have to buy me something for Christmas. <laughs> right, right, right. It's, it's absurd because, like... There's gold all around them. It's like essentially worthless, um, and he's trying to. Pay but Harry this with would it. be like as if, like it's just, it's if so you're in a weird. Club and dollar bills start raining from the yeah. ceiling. Yeah, you know? and you're like, okay, like, I, I, so just kind of from that comparison, but also in general, I'm like, does any, does everybody else, is it common knowledge that this is gone? Because people seem like excited, they're getting all the gold. Like maybe that's just like the heat of the moment, but. Ron definitely doesn't know, and nobody, like, tells him in, in that moment. So yeah, I'm like, are I mean, people thinking thought, it's real gold? Maybe they just thought he was joking. I think probably, I mean, it's described as, like, a lot of wizards are scrambling around mm, in, the, yeah. in the stands to get the gold. So probably a lot of, especially foreign wizards that aren't familiar with leprechauns. Oh, maybe don't um, know. Yeah. Wouldn't know that leprechaun gold vanishes. It seems to be common knowledge among, like, adult wizards mm-hmm. who at least have, like, you know thought about leprechauns before mm-hmm. i guess if you've never thought about it before you might not know right um but it seems like one of those things that like especially british wizards growing up with the like folk lore mm-hmm. about leprechauns and like they always have a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow or whatever like they would know that leprechauns can make a gold-like substance that vanishes mm-hmm. after a few hours um and when they learn this in care of magical creatures class ron is like devastated right because he really didn't know and apparently his parents never told him about it yeah um, and also the fact is that they didn't notice. Like if they had, I was about to say, they don't notice, yeah. That, that was why he gets so upset, too, is that Harry doesn't notice. Mm-hmm. But the reason that Harry doesn't notice is because of everything else that's that about happened, to go on yeah. next chapter. So, you know, as Harry rightly points out, like, they got caught up in everything else that was going on. They mm-hmm. didn't even think about, like, Harry's like, How, why would I think about gold when, like, muggles are hanging upside down mm-hmm. in the sky? Like, I'm not thinking about gold right now. Right. Okay. But it's just, I thought it was kind of interesting that, like, it does seem like it's unclear whether everybody is fooled or mostly just Ron is fooled, and yeah. it is sad when he realizes later. I think a lot of people were fooled, but probably mostly foreign wizards, because there were a lot of those. So, on the match itself, there isn't too much to say about it. It's it's a really interesting and exciting um, match. I think one of the things that I thought about when we were reading it a lot was... Um, how interesting the omnioculars were from like a mm-hmm. technological Writing. standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that it allows you to like slow down time and like watch play by plays and like stuff will pop up on the screen. I thought that was a really cool idea. It is really cool, yeah. Um, and they never bring up omnioculars ever again, but they should have. I, I, like, they should have found a way to write them in because it's such a good It would have been fun. Idea. And you could be like, yeah, replay conversation or something. Sure. See, or yeah. like, like, yeah, like, in, in everyday life, what if, like, a play-by-play flashed up? You know right, I mean? right. Where it was, like, uh, you know, if there was, like, a label for, like, a guy hitting on a girl with some line or something like that, it would pop up with, like, you know, a title for that kind yeah. of, like, interaction. That would be really funny. There mm-hmm. was, a lot, like, a lot of humor you can draw from that. Um, but just the idea, for me, of, like, 
seeing a play-by-play with like text flashing up on mm-hmm. the like the glasses that you're looking through. I just thought that was a fantastic idea. And then the actual like match itself, it's really exciting. And I was thinking about when we were reading it, um, is this the single most impressive Quidditch match from a writing standpoint? Mm. And maybe if it is, maybe that's why the author wanted so hard to avoid writing Quidditch matches in the future because it's like hard to top this one. Yeah, it's true. And I mean, but it's funny you say that because I feel like this one is really short compared to um, Mm. the matches that have been written about in the earlier books. And maybe that's because like that was all that was happening in the chapter. There wasn't like as much to write about surrounding it. But Mm. I felt like, yeah, this was pretty good writing for, for the Quidditch game and the the actual writing about Quidditch was kind of like in between the moments of the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Um, this one is so fast paced too. I mm-hmm. mean, they describe that like the movements of the chasers and the the quaffle are like so fast. Mm-hmm. Harry can barely keep up with it. Right. Um, and like Ludo Bagman just has time to say their name and then they're already on to the next person. Right. You know, so like that's a difficulty in writing it for sure. Um, but just in terms of like the actual, you know, what happens in the game and, mm-hmm. and the yeah, outcome, it's exciting. I feel like that's, Probably the most exciting Quidditch match we've seen Maybe so far. Maybe Ron's later. The one where Ron wins uh, mm-hmm. in the next book. Yeah, that one's pretty exciting as well. But just in general, I think it's easy to see why um, she wanted to take the excuse of having the Triwizard Tournament. So, okay, we're not going to have Quidditch this year. Yeah. Because if you have the Quidditch World Cup, it it's mm-hmm. probably seems really boring to write about Hogwarts Quidditch again right. after that. Although, I kind of think... And they, and they get at this a little bit with, like, Harry using the broom to fly around the dragon and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but it would be cool to sort of see Harry try to, like, do a Ronsky faint diversion. Mm-hmm. Like, and like try out that move against, like, another Seeker or something like that. Be like, oh, I want to be like Crumb. And, like, Crumb's in the stands watching. And comes up to Harry after the game and he was like, hey, nice Ronsky <laughs> faint. You know, I just like imagining. Wow, you just wrote a whole scene. I just like imagining scenes like that. I think that would be fun. Yeah, I mean, I was also always bored with quidditch in the books i didn't you know i couldn't picture it very well i didn't care I about Rowling it that much <laughs> yeah so i was sort of like that's fine um and i only really liked this chapter because of the surroundings in the game yeah like the omnioculars and things like yeah. that. yeah mm-hmm. well luckily for you that's all for quidditch this book yay thank you all for listening to harry podcast and the quidditch world cup we hope you've enjoyed our discussion of this chapter if you have thoughts or questions about anything we've discussed today, especially house elves and house elf culture, please email us at contact at theharrypodcast.com. You can find out more about the show and listen to any of our episodes at theharrypodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for next time when we search the skies in Chapter 9, The Dark Mark. I'm Madeline. And I'm David, and we'll see you next time on The Harry Podcast. Knox.